He is risen, as he said, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, um, dear friends, you know, the, the liturgy of tonight is, uh, is very rich, and there's so much in it uh, we could look at. And, but I, I want to focus on one particular aspect of uh, the liturgy, and that, that is uh, the aspect of the Paschal candle. Uh, and you'll see what I mean and why I'm focusing on that, because it's part of the, the series we've actually been looking at together. But when we look at, you know, there's so much in your, your missile, um, and, and the beauty of tonight is that it really takes all, almost all the mysteries of our faith, particularly those related to our redemption, and it puts them in symbol form uh, for you to much more easily uh, appreciate. And, and most of it comes out in the wording of uh, your missiles. But here, Father Kofine, whose words I want to use as an introduction, as a backdrop for the rest of what I'm going to say, Father Kofine, when he speaks about the significance of these things, he uh, explains that the Paschal candle uh, signifies uh, or is an emblem of Christ who is risen from the dead. Christ, the true light, leads us from the bondage of Satan into the freedom of the children of God, as the pillar of fire led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. The five holes in the candle represent the five wounds of Jesus by which mankind was healed. And the five grains of frankincense signify the spices uh, with which the body of our Lord was embalmed. Why are the other candles then lit from this candle? And Father Gofine explains that to show that Christ was the begotten by the Father of light from all eternity, and is therefore true God from true God, true light from true light, from whom enlightenment is diffused all over the world. Our Lord is the uncreated light uh, from all eternity, who comes into this created world and diffuses that light to us. But then, then in a more general way, Father Gofine goes on to explain. I just want to, I do think the words are worth citing because they are actually quite profound. He says, The priest with his hands parts the water in the form of the cross to illustrate that God gives to it the virtue of regenerating all those who are born in original sin, making them children of God through Christ who dies on the cross. He touches the surface of the water with the palm of his hand to show that the Holy Ghost is over this water as at creation and bestows many graces on those who are baptized. He blesses it, signifying, uh, uh, singing it, uh, three times with the, signing it three times with the sign of the cross because the water re- receives its uh, sin-cleansing power only through the suffering and the merits of Christ from the Father by the cooperation of the Holy Ghost. The baptismal water is thrown by the priest towards the four parts of the earth because the grace of baptism should reach all nations. The priest breathes on the water three times in the form of a cross as the Creator breathed into a breath of life for mankind. Christ breathed upon the apostles, the whole divine spirit, by his grace and power, revives and sanctifies those who are baptized. The Father, uh, the Easter candle, emblem of Christ, the risen from the dead, is dipped three times into the water, each time deeper, to show that the baptized should become more and more enlightened through the light of Christ's doctrine, more and more penetrated by its divinity, more and more purified from sin. 
The people are sprinkled with this water to remind all those present who have received sanctification in baptism uh, and have lost it by sin that they should strive to regain it by repentance. And this is the background for what uh, I want to cover with you tonight. And that is partly what I've already touched on, and it, which you understand why I say today we'll complete the series. That is, we spoke about uh, how Christ was the living temple and how he being the true living temple, and this notion comes from uh, the book of the Apocalypse. Christ, God, our Lord, is the temple, the living temple of God. And uh, we saw how in the temple of Moses, in the tent, in the desert, uh, the DNA structure of all that Christ is and all that we have in our churches was already there. And uh, Christ, uh, we, I said to you, when they, the Jews in the time of our Lord, they would celebrate this feast of, of tabernacles, uh, remembering the days of the tabernacle and the tent, uh, the desert, uh, uh, Moses. And uh, it was uh, on this, this feast, uh, or at least the, the day in the evening of this feast, where the Jews would, uh, in the time of our Lord, uh, because they were no longer uh, dwelling in the desert, but they were in uh, modern-day Israel, Palestine. There they had uh, the temple, this, uh, this great uh, magnificent uh, temple that they had built. And on the outer court, where it was known as the, the woman's court there, uh, the, the young Levites in the evening would, would climb up to the four pillars. And on the four, top of the four pillars were these magnificently large bowls of uh, pure olive oil. And they would light these uh, they would light these uh, uh, bowls and they would, by means of that, uh, fill with light the whole of the temple and the whole of the surrounding area uh, of the temple was, was like it was daylight. And you can imagine then, a few days later, when our Lord comes along and he declares to the people that I am the light of the world. He that follows me walks not in darkness, but he shall have the light of life. And that's why even St. John, when he, he first begins his gospel, he reminds us that our, our Lord uh, is in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Our Lord is the light of the world. But again, and this is very why it's important, I'm going to explain in more detail, but uh, uh, our Lord already gave them this idea that he, he the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, would be the light of the world. And where did we get this from? Again, the same place we got the notion, which I spoke to on Holy Thursday, of uh, uh, this bread. Well, where was that bread dwelling? It was in the tent. It was in the tabernacle. Well, likewise, in the tabernacle of Moses was the light. The light was a menorah. It was a, 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 like a candlestick, much where we have our candles in our altar, but one that had seven uh, uh, branches. And each, uh, the whole of the menorah, unlike most of the other things in the, the tabernacle, was made of pure gold from beginning to end, totally pure gold. Uh, it was about 35 kilos of pure gold. But once it was formed, then God uh, uh, told them that it must be hammered. It must be hammered and there must be imprints of uh, images of like flowers. It would look like a tree of some sort. Uh, and this represented our Lord, who was the light of the world. And this uh, menorah itself uh, was a symbol of Christ in many ways and on several levels. Firstly, the oil which was used had to be pure oil and pure olive oil. 
And to make olive oil, uh, it was a, a simple process, but a very technical process at the same time. So they would gather the, the, the olives, they would crush them, and then they would put the, 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 the mash of these crushed olives into these bags. And on top of these bags were placed one on top of the other, and then they were placed on top of the olive press, which is a last, large bream, and a, uh, uh, heavy weights placed on it. And then this was, uh, uh, this heavy weight was pushed down. And when the heavy weight came down, the oil began to flow. And the first, uh, the first press of the oil uh, came out uh, dark red, almost like blood. And then it was left to sit for a while. And once it sat, the pure uh, and clean olive oil would rise to the top. And this, this olive oil of the first press was only to be used uh, to light the menorah. The second, the second pressing, the first pressing was only for the menorah and for the anointing of the priests or kings. The second pressing was for, for food uh, and healing. The third pressing people could use to light in their homes because the quality of the oil wasn't so, so great. But this reminds us that the bread, the wine, and the oil, all three of them had to be crushed in order to be produced. So to make bread, you have to crush the grains. To make wine, you have to crush the grapes. To make olive oil, you have to crush uh, the olives. Our Lord would be crushed. But what would be produced, like in the same case with wine, with, uh, with uh, the bread and with the oil, something beautiful. And our Lord would be crushed to produce the beautiful fragrance of atonement. He would be our atoning victim, our healing balm from the, the poison and the trials, the difficulties of this life. Our Lord would be our light. Our Lord would enlighten us in this world of darkness. Uh, and what was interesting was that in the tabernacle of Moses, there was the, this, uh, this menorah was the only source of light. And so Thomas Aquinas, commenting on this, says, notice that it had seven branches. The seven branches representing the seven sacraments and the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost. Seven representing the number of perfection, like the seven days of creation, completion. Uh, our Lord would give us the seven gifts and, uh, of the Holy Ghost and the seven sacraments, all to lead us to uh, a deeper, uh, intimate union uh, with him. But they all came at the price of our Lord being crushed on the cross for our salvation. And this, uh, as the priest entered the temple, what did he see? He saw this light, but this light in the form of a tree. And in front of him was the veil of the temple uh, before he entered the Holy of Holies. And there on the veil was what? The, the image of the cherubim, reminding him of the angels which guarded the way to the path of uh, the Garden of Eden once the Adam and Eve were cast out. Uh, all this prefiguring uh, the eternal return where? To heaven. To this Garden of Eden was a temporal thing, but reminding us that it prefigures the entering of what St. Paul says of uh, the veil beyond the, 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 the temple, which is eternal life. Uh, St. Paul goes into great details and all this in the book of Hebrews. But it's sufficient for us to grasp already our Lord is using all these things to prepare the Jews, all these things I mentioned to you in all the previous sermons, because now on the one uh, our Lord rises from the dead, there's this very profound scene which I would love to have been there for, 
where our Lord is speaking with these disciples on the road to Amos, and they, uh, our Lord acts like he doesn't know uh, uh, what they're talking about, and he appears as a stranger to them. And he asks them, what are they discussing? And they're, they're discussing about this, this Messiah who they thought were hoping was going to be the Savior, and they, they say that their hopes were, were dashed because he was crucified by the Romans. And then the Bible's very clear. Our Lord comes down very hardly on them and says, Did you not know? It's written uh, in the Scriptures uh, that the Son of Man must uh, suffer all these things before he enters into his glory. And then the Bible says he goes on to expound to them all the things written from Moses until the present day, showing them very clearly in sacred Scripture where our Lord clearly was prefigured, foretold in so many different aspects, uh, reminding them that our Lord didn't just fall out of the sky. Uh, it wasn't something that was going to be difficult for them to figure out. It was already there in their scriptures. Uh, so our Lord just opened their eyes to this profound reality. And so this is a very, uh, this link between us, our Lord, and his light in the temple. Uh, and we might say, well, this is uh, very interesting. Now I'm going to look at this in more detail. But here we see, I notice in, in the book of the Apocalypse, St. John sees the same, same thing that I was just talking about. He sees uh, the menorah and he says to us, I turned and looked to see the voice which was speaking with me. And I saw the seven golden sticks. And in the midst of the candlestick, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a long garment. And he was girt about uh, with paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white as wool or snow, and his eyes as a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass from a furnace of fire, and his voice like the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand uh, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a, harp, uh, uh, a sharp two-edged sword, and his uh, face shone as the sun in the, his might. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, he that liveth and was dead, and lo, I am living forevermore. Our Lord is the light of the temple. Uh, but we might ask ourselves, how does that uh, apply to us today? And, uh, and you know, recently I, I saw a, a statement on, on social media which addresses this point. Somebody was pointing out what I would usually call the obvious is in the world there's uh, madness and it's, it's a terrible situation what we are seeing today. And someone responded by saying, yeah, that is right and no one is going to come and save you. And my answer is actually, um, unless you're blind, somebody has come and somebody has saved us. In other words, why do I say unless you're blind? Because today, dear friends, we must, we, it's like we forget, we've got a short memory, that today we live in a civilized, somewhat civilized world because Christ made us civilized. The world outside the Roman Empire was known as a savage world, and the Romans themselves, as you saw from the crucifixion, weren't exactly that um, civilized, really. And their empire came crashing down because they became themselves perverse, barbaric, and, and mad, uh, degenerate like our age. So we went into what we called in the 500s, the Dark Ages. And, you know, 
our country, Australia, be honest, our country, Australia, uh, the, the, the First Nation people, they were, let's be, uh, uh, I'm not politically correct person, so don't worry about that. So they were savages. Uh, the Aborigines were killing each other, they were uh, performing, uh, uh, they were cannibals. They were brutal towards women and children, and they still are. Uh, we know that uh, the vast amount of women and children in, in the Aboriginal communities are abused. That's just a fact. And by their own people, not by white people, but by their own people. And that's been from day dot uh, from their culture. It's only, it's only Christianity that gives us civilization. It's the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church alone which gave us Western civilization. And if there is civilization today, it's thanks to the Catholic Church. All nations, not just the Aborigines, Prior to the coming of Christ, look at the Aztecs, look at the English, the French, they were all savages. They were savages. It's the Catholic Church that made us civilized. And that's thanks to Jesus Christ, not because the church is fantastic, but because our founder, Jesus Christ, who touched us with his grace and his light, he made us be able to be uh, good people. And here, on this point, I just, you know, Aristotle saw this dilemma. Aristotle, this great philosopher, he said to himself, to have good people, you know, we need good laws. But to have good laws, we need good people. So how, how do we solve this dilemma? We can't have good people without good laws. But if the people are no good, we're not going to get good laws. And he was right. And we can't get out of this dilemma. It's only Christ that came, and, and it's what St. Paul mentions, that Christ died for us when we were his enemies. And look at what we did. We, again... It's a beautiful point that uh, Chesterton makes, and it's always remained in my head. The height of human civilization, the Romans, the greatest of the nation, the, the priests, the religious, the Jews, the most religious people, the children of God, when they both came together, what did they do? They killed their God. That's how wicked we are. That's how perverted we are without the grace of God. The Romans, and, and even Pilate, as... Um, as wicked as he was, he could still admit that this man, whoever he is, he's innocent. Well, he's in, and then I have him scourged. Well, how, does that make sense? He's innocent, and I have him punished. Forget about goodness, truth. We are wicked. He's innocent, and I have. It. Then I have him crucified, and he wants to wipe the blood of his hands, as though as though washing your hands makes you innocent. Your duty is to uphold the law. You claim to be the men of the law, but barbaric, barbaric, savage. Jews claim to be men of God, wicked, perverse. Our Lord deals with the dilemma. He, plays, he offers himself as the victim. And why? In order to touch us with his grace. Not to condemn us, not to throw a rock at us and say, I told you so, but to heal us, to uh, open our eyes. And in this, in this St. John Chrysostom points out something quite profound. He says, that Christ drew the world to himself through his cross. If the cross seemed to be a subject of scandal, still not only does it scandalize, but it draws to itself. St. Paul had all these things in mind and was struck with astonishment when he said that the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Well, what's St. John Chrysostom getting at here? Well, he points out that if you look at the past, all the men prior to Christ, all the good men that tried to deal with and, and help people, and, and I'm thinking of people like uh, uh, you know, Socrates who tried to get men to reason, to use their intellect, to understand you have a soul, that you have an eternal destiny. 
All their attempts to get men to be good, they all failed. They all did not succeed. And yet Christ, not so much by doing anything, but having it done to him, enduring all the suffering, the passion, uh, he, he convinced men by the cross, by the cross. And by that, he touched us. This is how it says St. John Chrysostom, how the folly of God is wiser than man and his weakness stronger. How is it stronger? It is stronger in that it spreads over the whole world and seizes all men by force. And whereas thousands and thousands did their utmost to stamp out the name of the crucified one, just the contrary came to pass. For this name took root and was propagated all the more. Whereas they were destroyed and consumed and living men fighting a dead one gain not a stroke. Consequently, when a pagan non-believer tells me that I am a fool, he proves that he himself is doubly one. Inasmuch as, considered by him to be a fool, I appear wiser than the wise. And when he calls me weak, he shows himself to be weaker. For publicans and fishermen set up those very things by the goodness of God, which philosophers, orators, and despots, and the whole world vainly strode with all its might, and could not even devise. So the whole world has striven against our faith. And today, the world does the same. And they've got more, more means, more technology and more uh, tools to mock Christianity, to undermine uh, Christianity, whatever you want. And yet, you're still here and I'm still here. Because God is still here. He hasn't changed. God's grace is still touching hearts and minds every day in the world. And this is why we are here. Because his grace is here. So on the contrary, yes, he has come to save us. He is come to save us and he will save us. He does not abandon us. The church and human history have gone through many dark trials. And God did not abandon us. Even amidst the trials, amidst the difficulty. And he still does not. And this is why it is for us so a profound uh, reality. uh, To grasp the light of Christ uh, in our midst. And our Lord reminds us that you are the light of the world. A city seated on a mountain cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but upon a candlestick, that it may shine to all that are in the house. So let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen.